Hello, and welcome back to the Room Madness Podcast, the podcast for everyone who is crazy about rheumatology. My name is David Leverance, and I am a rheumatologist specializing in medical education, quality improvement, corny jokes, and sharing my over-exuberant enthusiasm about rheumatology with others. I'm so glad you're here. We have a really exciting podcast for you today. I am truly thrilled to be joined by three guests who also happen to be part of our newly formed Room Madness leadership team. If you've listened to previous episodes, you already know Dr. Aki Udupa, a second-year fellow at Duke, and Dr. Alan Witt, a third-year resident at Duke. We are also joined by a new voice on the podcast, Dr. Guy Katz, a first-year fellow at MGH. In this episode, we discuss four topics from the ACR Convergence Conference that could be teams in the Room Madness Tournament. The topics are belimumab for lupus nephritis, interleukin-16 as a biomarker in lupus nephritis, the new draft rheumatoid arthritis treatment guidelines, and pregnancy outcomes in patients with interstitial lung disease. It's a fun discussion, and I'm really glad you're here for it. Before we get to the discussion, however, I wanted to give a brief recap of what Room Madness is and why we are doing this podcast. It's been a while since our last podcast, and in the interim, we have gained a lot of new listeners and members of the Room Madness Facebook group. So I want to make sure everyone is up to speed on what all of this is about. Room Madness is an educational initiative funded by the Rheumatology Research Foundation Clinician Scholar Educator Award. The main event of Room Madness is a March Madness-style tournament of rheumatology concepts that will take place every year in the spring. This is the first year of the tournament, so we want to make sure to spread the word and help people understand how this is going to work and how they can participate. In short, this spring, we will release a bracket made up of about 20 different rheumatology concepts that will compete against each other as teams, much like basketball teams in the NCAA March Madness tournaments. These teams will be novel, important, and fun concepts in rheumatology. For example, we might have the new IgG4 related disease classification criteria compete against the new gout guidelines in one part of the tournament. And we might have new disease mechanisms like prime cells and RA flares competing against interleukin-16 and lupus nephritis in another part of the tournament. The winner of each matchup will be decided by a blue ribbon panel of rheumatology experts who will vote to determine which topic they think is more important. So how will you participate? Well, just like those competitive office pools where everyone fills out their March Madness bracket, in Room Madness, you will get a chance to fill out your own bracket where you try to predict the winners of each matchup between rheumatology concepts and ultimately guess which topic is crowned the most important concept of the year. And throughout the process, you will get to debate the outcomes, gloat about your victories, or bemoan the choices of the Blue Ribbon panel. We will give you more instructions on how and when this is going to happen as we get closer to March, but I assure you it's going to be a lot of fun. Right now, we are in the preseason phase where teams are jockeying for position to be included in the tournament. This podcast series is reviewing some of the concepts that might be included in the tournament and hopefully providing some education for our listeners along the way. So without too much more delay, let's get to our discussion for today. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me this evening to talk rheumatology. I recorded a brief introduction ahead of time, but let's go around and have introduce uh, everyone introduce themselves and maybe say a little bit about 
who you are and where you are and what stage of training you're in. Hi, everyone. My name is Aki. I am one of the second year uh, rheumatology fellows at Duke University Hospital. Nice to be here. Hello, I'm Alan. I am a third year internal medicine resident at Duke University. So glad to be able to join in on tonight's discussion. Hello, my name is Guy Katz. I am a first year rheumatology fellow at the Massachusetts General Hospital, uh, and I'm very happy to be here. Great. We are so excited that you are all here. Now, our format for today is a little different from usual, but we're still going to start with a few reminders about our previous episode on prime cells in rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, so, Dr. Katz, would you like to share a reminder that you took away from that episode? I would love to. So last time um, we learned about uh, prime cells, which are cells that are similar to fibroblast-like synoviocytes that were found through this um, uh, study with only four people to um, predict flares of rheumatoid arthritis activity. And this was a new cell that was discovered. Thanks, Dr. Katz. Dr. Witt. When I listened to the episode, uh, again, like one particular phrase stuck out, and that was antecedent to the flare, but it was Dr. Adupa who's, who said it. And uh, the fact that this study did a good job of actually looking at what was going on at the molecular level prior to an RA flare is unique and uh, potentially very useful for determining what's actually happening and maybe even one day developing better a better way of predicting when a flare is going to occur in treatments. Also, the applicability of this particular method to other rheumatological diseases that have flares. Great. Thanks, Dr. Witt. Yeah, it was a fun episode, certainly a challenging topic, but an interesting opportunity to learn about the pathophysiology of rheumatoid arthritis um, with some really incredible science. So our main topic today is actually four topics. So Dr. Yudupa and I are each going to present two topics from the ACR convergence meeting that we think would make excellent teams in the tournament. We're each going to give a little overview of each topic, followed by an open discussion among the four of us in which we debate the strengths and weaknesses of each topic as a team and consider what might make a good opponent for each team. So Dr. Yudupa is going to discuss belimumab for lupus nephritis and interleukin-16 as a biomarker in lupus nephritis, both of which were presented in the second plenary session of the ACR. And I will be discussing the new draft rheumatoid arthritis ACR treatment guidelines, which had its own hour-long session. I will not be talking for an hour about it. Um, I'm also going to be presenting some interesting data on pregnancy outcomes in patients with interstitial lung disease, which was from the third plenary session. Now, Dr. Katz and Dr. Witt did not get to attend ACR, so they're going to be hearing some of this information for the first time. And at the end of our podcast, Dr. Katz and Dr. Witt will each choose two of the four topics that they think deserve to be topics in the Room Madness Tournament. Uh, let's get started. I'm going to go ahead and get started uh, with my first topic, which is the draft rheumatoid arthritis guidelines. I think the rheumatoid arthritis guidelines are an interesting topic for this discussion. These guidelines are not actually providing any new data, unlike a lot of our other topics for this evening. Um, and actually, the paper isn't even published yet, so the guidelines are not finalized, and we don't yet have that really nice written justification section for each of the uh, topics that they presented in the guidelines. 
um, which we really love to read over and debate and think about the, the data that they use to justify each of the recommendations. However, this was the first time these new guidelines were presented publicly, and they're pretty important because they reflect the new standard of care for the disease that is by far the most common in rheumatology practice. For background, these new guidelines are meant to update the previous 2015 ACR treatment guidelines. Now, what I'm not going to do is review each and every guideline that they discussed in the presentation. Instead, I'm going to here present some of the major differences in these new draft guidelines from the 2015 guidelines. So here we go. Just a few key differences. First, in the 2015 guidelines, methotrexate was recommended as the first treatment for essentially all patients with newly diagnosed rheumatoid arthritis that were DMARD naive, meaning new patient never taken a DMARD. Pretty much everybody was recommended to take methotrexate. However, in the new draft 2020 guidelines, methotrexate is still recommended for newly diagnosed patients with moderate or high disease activity, which is most of our newly diagnosed patients. However, hydroxychloroquine was conditionally recommended over methotrexate in those who were DMARD naive and were presenting with low disease activity. Another key difference occurred in what to do with patients who continue to have high disease activity despite failing methotrexate or despite taking methotrexate at maximally tolerated doses. In the 2015 guidelines, combinations of conventional synthetic DMARDs, which are things like methotrexate, sulfasalazine, and hydroxychloroquine, in particular, um, those three medications used together, which is known as triple therapy, was considered an equivalent choice to adding a biologic DMARD like a TNF inhibitor. However, in the 2020 draft guidelines, the addition of a biologic DMARD or JAK inhibitor was actually conditionally recommended over triple therapy. They explained in the presentation in these guidelines that although there are randomized controlled trials that demonstra demonstrate similar efficacy of triple therapy compared to methotrexate plus a biologic, the patient panel that participated in guideline development preferred the option using a biologic or JAK inhibitor rather than triple therapy due to their more rapid onset compared to triple therapy. And the guideline group also referenced really increasing data that patients have a hard time adhering to or persisting with triple therapy due to pill burden and tolerance of these medications. I'm sure this will end up being one of the more controversial recommendations in the new guidelines as the debate really still rages on about whether or not we should be using triple therapy or a biologic plus methotrexate. And for those who are interested, I will plug a wonderful other podcast called EB Room uh, by Dr. Mike Putman. And somewhere in the archives of that podcast, there's a great debate on uh, triple therapy versus biologics. The other main differences in the new guidelines compared to the previous guidelines are that they issue instructions for specific populations that were not covered in the previous guidelines. So for example, they cover what to do in patients with uh, rheumatoid nodules. So they recommend conditionally that methotrexate actually be used in patients with rheumatoid nodules if they have moderate to high disease activity, despite the known association between methotrexate and worsening of nodulosis. They do suggest that you should, of course, switch to a different therapy if the nodules worsen, 
Um, but they don't say you should avoid it. In fact, they conditionally recommend that you should still use it in someone with nodules. Similarly, they conditionally recommend starting or continuing methotrexate in patients with incidental, mild, and stable lung disease. They recognize in this recommendation that methotrexate can cause pneumonitis, but as I'm sure they will discuss more in the justification portion of their guidelines, um, there is really little evidence that methotrexate actually causes or worsens rheumatoid arthritis-associated interstitial lung disease. And thus, they favor using this medication because of its established efficacy as an anchor drug in rheumatoid arthritis. The guidelines also address treatment in patients with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, hepatitis B positivity, and patients with a recent serious infection. Uh, it's really a whirlwind of recommendations, and I'm only hitting the highlights. But those are some of the main differences that I noticed listening to this presentation and going through their presentation compared to the 2015 guidelines. So that's my overview. I'll open it up to the group. What do you guys think about this uh, topic as a team in the tournament? Good topic, bad topic, good opponents? Seems like a good topic. Um, again, it's guidelines, which can be um, onerous to get through at some point. And sometimes it's not like a new treatment or... Uh, anything like that. There's no new data generated from this, but uh, in terms of practice changing, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, well, I don't know if it's, I think the guidelines probably reflect what a lot of practitioners were doing. Uh, I'm, I'm a resident, but just from observation and seeing and rotating with rheumatologists, seems like a lot of this was what was happening. Um, it's interesting too, that they were going based off of like patient like like what the patients want is also what came through in the guidelines. Yeah, I think it would be cool to to tee it up with like we already talked about IgG four guidelines, which um, you know is is very interesting. There were a lot of new things that came out of that, so it's it'd be interesting to see those two go head to head. I completely agree with pairing this up with the IgG four related disease classification criteria it seems like the two could go against each other pretty nicely. I agree that this would be a really nice topic. Some of the strengths that I am thinking about are uh, that there are some practice changing bits here, including the, uh, the, the fact that it addresses populations that previously there weren't clear recommendations for what to do. And the, the news about the hydroxychloroquine and low disease activity can be potentially practice changing for a lot of people as well. I think one weakness and one potential area that could expose this potential team to be beat by the other team is uh, that the, the paper itself is not out yet. So we're, we're not going to be able to go into the justification all that much. Um, and that opens up to some holes in, in arguments. And then also that there are some controversial elements about this as well. And it's going to be hard to get a lot of support for some of the more controversial elements like the the fact that biologics are recommended over triple therapy conditionally. But overall, I think it's a, a really wonderful topic and, and definitely one that I'd like to see discussed. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about the controversy. It was interesting. And I think also, yeah, it would be a great opponent for the IgG4 related disease classification criteria. If we ever do the new gout guidelines, um, that might also be a great team to pair it up with. We'll see, we'll see how many teams make it into the tournament, but that might be another worthy foe. Dr. Udupa, do you want to move on to do your first topic? 
I definitely do. So I'm going to start out with uh, belimumab in lupus nephritis. So we know lupus nephritis is the most common severe manifestation of systemic lupus, affecting up to 60% of patients, and it's a major cause of morbidity and mortality. Some studies have even suggested that up to 30% of patients that have lupus nephritis will eventually go on to end-stage renal disease, which is actually a statistic that's been really frustratingly unchanged for decades. And I think this is um, ultimately because this particular patient population has often been excluded from major trials and treatments have really remained limited during this time period um, until recently. As of today, as of December 17th, as we are recording this podcast, we now have a single FDA-approved medication for the treatment of active lupus nephritis, Benlista. And Benlista, as as most of you know, Uh, has already been FDA approved to treat active seropositive systemic lupus back in 2011. And that's a pretty big deal because that was the first medication approved for this indication in over half a century. The decision to approve Benlista for the treatment of active lupus nephritis was based off of a two-year phase three international randomized control trial, often referred to as BLISS-LN, B-L-I-S-S, LN. And this study included 448 adults with seropositive lupus and biopsy-proven lupus nephritis that were treated with standard of care lupus nephritis induction and maintenance regimens and who either received Benlista or placebo. And starting at week 24, the primary endpoint, which was called the primary efficacy renal response at week 104, was higher in the belimumab treatment group and the probability of sustaining the primary efficacy renal response through week 104 was significantly higher in the belimumab treatment group. So it's worth defining what that primary endpoint is, just so everyone's aware. Um, they, the study group defined the primary efficacy renal response as a urine protein to creatinine ratio less than or equal to 0.7. Uh, as well as having an EGFR that was no more than 20% worse than the pre-flare value or more than 60, and they had to have no rescue therapy at all during the study period. The probability of renal-related events or death was 50% lower in the belimumab treatment group. That's also worth defining. Um, They defined time to renal-related event or death as, of course, either death, progression to ESRD, doubling of the serum creatinine from baseline, increased proteinuria, impaired renal function, or kidney-related treatment failure. Adverse effects uh, between groups, which is important as you're considering adding on another immunosuppressive agent, were not significantly different between the groups. And this really kind of ask the question to many of us, would you add belimumab to standard of care in the treatment of lupus nephritis, especially now that it's FDA approved? Yeah, I saw your tweet before we did this that it was FDA approved. And I was like, oh my goodness, I can't believe they already approved it. Um, I was also uh, interested, I maybe I don't know the ACR rules very much, but I kind of thought you couldn't do a uh, an abstract in ACR if you'd already published the paper. <laughs> uh, 
but maybe I just don't know how this works. So anyway, it, yeah, this was presented at a plenary, but they already had the New England Journal paper out when it uh, was presented. So it was, all of this is just very interesting timing. <laughs> I agree that this is a really important problem. The, the idea that our treatments for lupus nephritis are so limited um, in terms of what's actually, what has a good evidence base to it is is really it's challenging so I, I think that's one of the strengths of this as a potential team in room madness is that it's very important it's a, a clinical problem that is relatively unmet and it's a new potential treatment for it which i think is huge i do think that there are a number of weaknesses and the weaknesses to it as a topic are um the weaknesses that came from the trial itself. You know, the outcomes for the trial were, were mostly non-clinical. Uh, it was mostly just renal outcomes and numbers rather than uh, clinical outcomes. But overall, I think this is a, a really uh, important topic and, and potentially very much clinically um, relevant and practice changing for a lot of people. So I, I totally agree with making it a topic. Yeah, those are definitely excellent points. And it's really worth reading the paper and kind of dissecting and understanding the limitations to really see if it's appropriate to change your practice based on this study. I think, it, yeah. And for that reason, uh, and just the sheer potential for this to, to change things for people with lupus nephritis, I think it could potentially be a really good topic. It would really allow people to dissect and pinpoint problems with the trial itself. And then the discussion, the fact that it was approved by the FDA so recently, it's fresh um, and, and seemingly quickly is another topic for discussion. So this is an area where controversy might make it a good topic because it's something that people want to talk about. Yes. Any fame is fame. Yeah. I mean, I think this is going to be really interesting. I mean, I, you know, with this new trial, with this new FDA approval, you know, everyone's going to have to reckon and wrestle with how do we fit this into our practice? You know, I, I, I really liked seeing at the end of the, tr at the end of the treatment period that the uh, patients that were on belimumab, um, you know, not only did they meet their outcome of superiority in their uh, renal outcome, but they were also taking less prednisone, which is, you know, another one of the major issues that we have in lupus care is, you know, we want to make our patients better, but we also don't want to hurt them with our treatments. And the amount of prednisone that lupus patients take is obviously a huge issue over the course of their lives. So um, that's a really interesting topic. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I think it would be really fun to pair this against lots of different teams. I'd love to see it competing against Voclosporin and lupus nephritis. You know, we also now in the last year have um, some trials on anafrolumab in lupus, which is not yet FDA approved. And uh, so, you know, there's some, a couple interesting teams that it can compete against, you know, even avacapan for ankyovasculitis is a new therapeutic regimen. Um, that'd be a great competitor. So um, we'll see what happens. Well, so let's move on. I'll move on to my second topic. So, so far we've done bilimumab and lupus nephritis and the new rheumatoid arthritis treatment guidelines. My second topic is interstitial lung disease in pregnancy. So I have to admit on this one, I'm a little biased because this study was done by an all-star team at Duke, which is my institution. And uh, I just love this study, but I, I think it can hold its own on its own merits without me being biased about it being from Duke. So Dr. Katz, you can keep us honest here. <laughs> um, but this study, so first of all, uh, this was 
a first author, uh, a, a, a medical student, Ardra Rajendran. And uh, the study group was led by really one of the most incredible mentors on the planet, Dr. Megan Close. And I have to say, if you get a chance to watch uh, Arja Rajendran's presentation in the plenary, plenary session, it is just incredible to watch a medical student present such a complex study with poise and clarity. Um, it was really incredible to watch. Um, but that's not really why I picked this uh, for discussion tonight. I picked it because it's a really impactful study. It turns out we know next to nothing about the outcomes of ILD pregnancies. With previously only four total studies published in, um, in the literature on this subject. And each of those studies contained only 15 patients at most. And despite this dearth of information, many women with interstitial lung disease, especially interstitial lung disease um, overlapping with many rheumatologic diseases, are instructed that they can never pursue pregnancy or are advised to terminate pregnancies because of fear about cardiorespiratory compromise despite really almost no data. So this study uh, presented at this plenary session retrospectively analyzed the charts of 67 patients with 94 pregnancies who had a diagnosis of interstitial lung disease secondary to autoimmune disease, thus representing the largest review of this topic to date. Now, ILD severity was classified using PFTs to divide the patients into those with normal PFTs, mild, moderate, and severe disease, according to American Thoracic Society guidelines. I should point out that 69% of the pregnancies occurred in patients with sarcoidosis, and the remainder were in patients with other connective tissue diseases like systemic lupus, systemic sclerosis, Sjogren's syndrome, rheumatoid arthritis, ankyovasculitis, and the inflammatory myopathies. And by far, patients with sarcoidosis had milder ILD and were less likely to be taking a DMARD medication compared to those with uh, connective tissue disorder uh, ILD pregnancies. So this was a cohort that really was primarily uh, sarcoid, but still had quite a few um, other uh, uh, more traditional rheumatologic diseases uh, that we care for. So how did the pregnancies do? Overall, they actually did quite well. So 70% of the pregnancies resulted in live birth. 20% did result in a miscarriage or stillbirth, and 10% were terminated. There were no maternal deaths, and only one patient required intubation for respiratory compromise. Uh, this was a patient with eGPA who had a mid-pregnancy asthma flare. There were a few respiratory complications around the time of delivery, including four patients with volume overload after the delivery and a few more who required oxygen at delivery. And finally, the researchers also aggregated adverse maternal and fetal outcomes using some validated composite measures, which really mashed together things like preeclampsia, preterm delivery, the delivery of an infant that was small for gestational age, or fetal or neonatal deaths. So kind of all of that together. And among the seven pregnancies with severe ILD, all of these seven pregnancies had at least one of these adverse outcomes, and only three resulted in a live birth. Conversely, the outcomes of patients with normal PFTs, mild PFTs, and moderate PFTs um, for interstitial lung disease, um, those outcomes for all of those categories were actually quite similar, with the majority of pregnancies resulting in a live birth and less than 20% of the pregnancies in each category suffering a, what's considered a severe adverse pregnancy outcome. 
The authors thus concluded, and I quote from their presentation, that women with ILD may not need to avoid conception altogether or terminate pregnancies. However, patients with severe ILD are at risk for poor pregnancy outcomes. All right, so that's my overview. What do you all think about this one? You know, I like I like this one because it's un- unique and in that it's 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 actually look, trying to do an earnest study of of uh, disease in pregnant women, which there's not a lot of data on. And by, as you pointed out, there is a lack of homogenization among the population because seventy percent of of uh, the subjects uh, had sarcoidosis, which is a little bit milder, but but you had a third that have connective tissue disease, and I really like how they um, break up into uh, the way the way they basically stratify based on um, the severity of ILD and mild, moderate, and severe. And um, so you can you can really see that delineation quite clearly in the table. I think potentially is huge for like all the young women out there who want to have a child and. Uh, unfortunately also have ILD and have been told you can't, we don't have like good data showing that you can't. Um, the risk is still there, but like you can at least have a discussion with those patients now with some information. So I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a awesome study. I, I don't know what you compare it to. I have, you know, like it's unique. So I don't know like what you would really pair it up against and like what division it would start off in, in this tournament. I completely agree. I I think this is such a fascinating study. I think a major strength is that the authors deserve a lot of props for studying pregnancy. It's not something that's easy to do. Um, And combining pregnancy with something as uncommon as CTD-ILD is is very challenging, um, as is evident by the fact that there is next to no evidence prior to this study in the same same topic. So I I think that 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 deserves a whole lot of credit. And that alone is potentially a good reason to have this as a topic. But the findings, I think, are, are just as important. Yes, there are, of course, limitations. It's retrospective. You know, maybe we would have wanted to see a little bit more of the um, connective tissue diseases, such as you know, lupus or uh, systemic sclerosis, inflammatory myopathies. But the fact that so many women with ILD, uh, secondary to an underlying autoimmune disease, did so well um, with pregnancy is... Um, for me, I think that that is practice changing, considering that there isn't other data to tell us otherwise, and the impact that that would have on so many uh, women and, and couples who are um, considering having a, a child is, I think that's enormous. I agree that it's a little difficult to uh, pin this up against a uh, an opponent, but I'm sure we could find a worthy opponent for for this. I think it's a really wonderful topic. Great, yeah, this was uh, fun to learn about and um just this team is just all-star and you know i mean dr close is just an incredible person who you know i just i see as someone just so fiercely devoted to learning about this population um you know learning all she can about pregnant women with autoimmune rheumatologic diseases and you know i and when i learned about this study you know, I'd heard about it peripherally, but when I saw the results, I mean, I immediately, I don't know if this happens to you all, but I immediately thought of at least one or two patients. I mean, I, I can see one of their faces and I, you know, I, I know some of the discussions we've already had where I've talked about how little data we have in this uh, situation and what they'd been told before, which it was so discouraging. And, 
you know, as you all mentioned, at least now we have something to say, you know, we have some, some data to at least base our discussions off of. And I'm, I just love that, uh, that we have some, some information and something to build on. So I am really looking forward to the paper. Um, and, you know, I mean, there's some patients with pulmonary hypertension in this and, um, you know, we'll probably learn more about um, those patients as well. And lots of unanswered questions for sure. Um, I agree. I don't know how we would pair this up. You know, I mean, I guess they, you know, we've done a, we've done one um, podcast so far on subgroups of relapsing polychondritis. Maybe we, maybe we think about, you know, pairing it up because there's some subgroups of ILD and pregnancies um, uh, and severity. I don't know. That doesn't really fit very well, but um, we'll have to see. But I'm glad you guys like this as a topic. Dr. Udupa, you want to take us home with the last topic? Yes, let's round this out. So switching gears ever so slightly from my first pitch, uh, let's talk about the role of biomarkers in diagnosing and managing lupus nephritis. So I think we all know that we're not really at a point yet where we can diagnose lupus nephritis non-invasively. While renal biopsies are generally safe, uh, they are not without complication. And uh, furthermore, once we manage to diagnose lupus nephritis uh, via biopsy, it can be really a struggle to monitor our patients for progression as they undergo treatment. So this was a topic that was more specifically discussed during the plenary session at this year's virtual ACR convergence meeting. And it specifically discussed urine proteomic biomarkers, specifically the chemotactic and pro-inflammatory cytokine IL-16, and how it can be a real game changer in diagnosing and managing lupus nephritis. Uh, This study group, it was led by Dr. Fava of John Hopkins uh, through a bunch of fancy scientific methodologies like integrated urine proteomics found that IL-16 was the urinary protein most significantly increased in proliferative lupus nephritis compared to membranous lupus nephritis and that IL-16 most strongly correlated with histologic activity. Its concentration did not depend on uh, the amount of proteinuria, and it actually decreased in patients who were being treated with and responding to immunosuppression. This study group actually used another fancy uh, scientific methodology called single-cell RNA sequencing to show that intrarenal infiltrating immune cells significantly expressed IL-16, and that this cytokine was the second highest cytokine in uh, lupus nephritis kidneys out of over 200 that were analyzed. So this is a really interesting and promising technique to avoid invasive tests to diagnose and manage a highly morbid complication of lupus patients. I think that's another really wonderful topic uh, and very exciting that we have another biomarker in, in lupus, specifically lupus nephritis. I do think that it's worth noting that this is just developing a new biomarker. It hasn't really compared it to the biomarkers that we already have, um, like double-stranded DNA, complements. And uh, so we don't know how it compares to all of that. But I I think that just the idea that we have a new potential biomarker is very exciting. I can't help but think that it would pair up really well with the uh, prime cells in RA. It seems like the two are very similar to each other, finding a, a biomarker that tells us something about the disease that we're trying to figure out 
um, how to diagnose a little bit better. So I, I think that that would be great. I, I like this study as a biomarker. I mean, like a, uh, a lot of patients who come into the hospital that I've treated as, as an intern with lupus nephritis, we get these urine protein studies. You know, we dutifully get the urine protein to creatinine ratio, and often it's high. And and but we're still a lot of times thinking, well, is it lupus nephritis or is it just like proteinuria because they have kidney disease? that's, uh, you know, a, a new biomarker study, it makes sense to me to compare it to the, the prime cells. I could see it pairing well with that or any other, like any other biomarker study out there for any other rheumatological disease that, and a topic that may come up. I hope there are some basic science oriented people who will be able to make the arguments for this one and the prime cells, because uh, I know that a lot of that science is above many of our heads. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, uh, I. Oh, go ahead. I do like their. I do like their figures. That's another reason they have really like pretty figures that make sense to like what they're saying. Um, so I think that visuals and graphics, when it comes to these like very basic science-related studies, are are super helpful um, when you're generating discussion. Yeah, sciencey stuff for dummies. I like it. <laughs> yeah, I need I need the pretty pictures to convince me that uh, this is a this is a thing. I mean, absolutely. yeah, I, they absolutely convinced me in this study that IL sixteen is a is a. I mean, this is very scientific. Is a thing in proliferative lupus nephritis. You know, I mean, it it seems almost beyond a shadow of a doubt that at least in their population that they were studying that this was a real finding. It was in the urine. It was in the um, actual kidney biopsies themselves. Um, and you can see how eventually this kind of thing could be used. You know, you have somebody who, you know, you're treating, you're responding, you know, you want to make sure that they're responding to therapy. Um, you know, we know, for example, that, you know, some patients that where their proteinuria gets better, you know, if they act, actually were rebiopsied, you might still see active disease. And, and so it's just, it's so exciting that this thing kind of thing might be possible. You know, we don't, you know, as, as many people brought up in questions during the discussion at this session, first of all, this needs validation in other studies, in larger cohorts. Um, and then it's also not clear if this is something unique to lupus nephritis. So there were questions which were quite reasonable, which is, well, yeah, it determines the difference between membranous and proliferative lupus nephritis, but what about other nephritic conditions um, uh, or even diabetic nephropathy? You know, I mean, you know, how can we make sure that this is specific to proliferative lupus nephritis? So there's, I think, still a long way to go to learn about how this kind of thing might be used. Um, but it is fascinating science. I'm not a scientist myself, but it, I really enjoyed reading about what these people can do. And, um, you know, kudos to them for finding a new avenue to help make our lupus nephritis patients better. Great. Uh, well, I think that ends our discussion of the four topics. Now we come to the final part of our discussion tonight when we will ask Dr. Witt and Dr. Katz to put their money down. This is, um, just so you know, not a binding decision at all. We can all totally change our minds, but just for fun, uh, Dr. Witt, if you had to pick only two of these topics to be teams in the tournament, which ones, which two would you pick? Um, okay, so I would go with, first of all, Benlista or Bilema Map. 
Uh, definitely, the belimumab study I think is uh, intriguing. It's controversial and it's far-reaching, and it's a new treatment. So I think it would be something that we needed to to discuss. Um, and people are going to be using it for this indication because the FDA has approved it. Um, so it's very relevant. Um, and then two, this is hard. This, these are all really good. And I mean, I think because it fits so nicely with uh, against the IgG4, I really would like to see the RA treatment guidelines also go in. And, and I think the fact that there's, it's controversial maybe helps it even, you know, there's to generate discussion, there will be some argument um, and kind of, it's not a slam dunk, you know, one way or the other, this is exactly what we should be doing. Great, all right. So thanks, Dr. Witt, uh, Dr. Katz. Okay. I think I do agree with the RA treatment guidelines being a really nice um, topic to discuss. I'd love to hear people's thoughts about that. I think my, my other vote would have to go to the pregnancy and ILD. I think it's really interesting and, and really exciting, and I think it would be really fun to hear people um, discuss that one a little bit more. Fantastic. Maybe a dark horse in the tournament. See how, see how, that one, how far that one makes it. Well, this is really fun. Uh, Everyone, thank you for joining us tonight. I really enjoyed this discussion. I learned a lot from hearing from Dr. Yudupa's uh, presentations and her topics. I learned a lot looking more deeply into the topics I presented. And I really enjoyed hearing um, all of your perspective, Dr. Witt, Dr. Katzen, Dr. Yudupa on these topics. Um, I think it'll be really fun. I think this is just an illustration of how this tournament is gonna be really fun. We're gonna enjoy putting these teams together in the tournament. We're gonna to enjoy watching them compete in the tournament. And I, I think this is an example of how we're gonna learn a lot by um, seeing how they compete against each other and thinking about them in new and fun ways. Uh, so thank you all for joining me tonight. That's it for this podcast and uh, see you all next time. <laughs>